Mighty God and everlasting one, we come before you who call yourself Lord God Almighty, the one who is the great I Am. As you have revealed yourself, O God, to Noah, we so ask that you administer your word to us now as we look at Genesis 9 and as we think about some of the important aspects of this section of your word. We pray, O Lord, that preaching would be done with unction, that hearing would be done with conviction, that you would help us, O God, to understand what your word says to us this morning. We ask, O God, that you would be with us and aid us through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might see Christ all the more clearly. And we so ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read Genesis chapter 9, 18 to the end of the chapter. Follow as I read through. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, in this particular section of Scripture, Moses is demonstrating the sons of Noah, not only because he's about to pass on a specific history, but for the purpose of more fully illustrating the force of the promise the cultural mandate replenished the earth. These people are going to be the future. As the text says, all the earth was populated. They are going to become the nations. The fate of all people rests in their hand. Out of all of the virtues that they have and all of the vices that they have, Noah's son, he and his sons, demonstrate all the families of the world. Now, why does Noah, the spiritual giant of the preceding narratives, appear in such a bad light? He gets off the ark and that's what Moses starts penning. What exactly did Ham do to Noah? Who is Canaan and why should he be cursed for something he didn't even do? It is surely very high praise for Noah when Moses mentions that he was just and perfect before God. That is, that he was full of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was endowed with chastity. He was good in all his works. He was pure in his worship and religion, although he endured many temptations from the devil, from the world, even from himself. Yet, he successfully overcame all these temptations, and that was the man that Noah was before the flood. 
Now, even though Moses has little to say about Noah after the flood, anyone will realize that since he lived for approximately 350 years after that time, such a great man could not have been inactive. Obviously, he was busy with the government of the church, which he alone established and ruled. He was basically filling the office of bishop. He was it. There wasn't anybody else. And because he had been plagued by various temptations, it was his foremost concern to oppose the devil and comfort the tempted, to restore those who might be erring, to give confidence to the wavering, to encourage those who are despairing, to shut out the impenitent from his church and to receive back the penitent with fatherly joy. All of those things Noah was supposed to do. These are almost the same duties that we perform today under the ministry of the word, something that a pastor does. But he also had civil tasks, right? Because he established the state, he had to formulate laws, he had to follow the laws God gave him, without which human desire and lust cannot ever be kept under control. In addition to this, there was the management of his own home and care for his household. Although, you know, reason tells us that after the flood, Noah was occupied with so many varied tasks, but Moses makes mention of none of them. He doesn't make mention of any of these things. To Moses, it seemed necessary to record only this one item. How he planted a vineyard, how he became drunk, and he lay naked in his tent. It seems uh, to be a silly little story, almost, placed in the midst of this great man's life. And if you compare it with the rest of Noah's outstanding achievements through the course of so many years, you wonder why it's here. If other events were recorded, they could edify people, maybe help them arrange their lives properly, follow God in the right way. Well, but this story also seems to give a cause for a friend to defend people who get drunk and sin because of their drunkenness. But the most significant element of the passage is the blessing and cursing, the two motifs that occur repeatedly through the book, blessing and cursing. I mean, obviously, there are some moral issues presented here. Drunkenness, nakedness, moral abandonment, sobriety, modesty, family honor. All of these things are in the passage that Moses is teaching us. It's fairly easy to see that the passage essentially has the record of the event and then an oracle afterwards or a prophecy the oracle being based on the actual event that occurred. It sparked it. Noah said some things as a result of Ham's sin. There's also a brief prologue that introduces the family members and all of the human population. And there's a conclusion that applies to the whole section of genealogy. But the two main sections, the event and the oracle, are parallel in their organization. And that's what Moses wants us to concentrate on. He put, he put this in here for particular reasons. Let's find out what he has. First, there's the prologue. The entire earth was populated by those who descended from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham being the father of Canaan. Moses makes that point. The prologue and epilogue form important links to the context of what's going on here. And it provides a background. What's the event? The event is this. In response to Noah's intoxication and nakedness, Ham acted with disrespect. But Shem and Japheth acted with reverence in covering their father. That's the event. 
And then there's Noah's behavior. After planting a vineyard, Noah became drunk and lay naked in his tent. So we have these things going on. After that, we have an oracle as a result of Noah waking up and finding out what Ham had done. God's people must respond to incidents of decadence with ethical purity rather than abandoning all of their morals, which is exactly what Ham did. Noah was a farmer. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. That's what he did. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment. They walked in backwards. They honored their father and they covered him back up. Now, the behavior of Noah after the flood provided the occasion for the violation by Ham. Noah sinned. If Noah hadn't sinned, Ham wouldn't have sinned in that particular manner. But Noah acted so differently from before the flood that even some commentators uh, have thought that it might even be a different person altogether. But it's not. It really is Noah. It simply presents one man who had walked in righteousness with God, who planted a vineyard, became drunk, and he lay naked in his tent. With the opportunity to start a covenanted society, Noah was found drunk in his tent. Think about that. Noah is described as literally a man of the soil in verse 20. The Lord of the earth, so to speak. And it harmonizes who Adam was and who Noah is. As Adam blew it, so did Noah. Noah was the second Adam. This man of the soil proceeded to plant a vineyard. What did Noah do that was wrong? Planting a vineyard, was that wrong? No, that wasn't wrong at all. Planting a vineyard doesn't seem problematic. The vine in the Bible is considered as noble, a good thing. The psalmist described wine as God's provision, stating that it, quote, gladdens the heart of man, Psalm 104.15. Judges says, quote, should I give up my wine with cheers both God and men, in 9.13. So having a vineyard isn't bad, drinking wine isn't bad. Not only did the fruit of the vine alleviate the pain of the curse, of the ground, but it also formed the symbol of the coming messianic age. Remember, Zechariah 8.12 and Isaiah 25.6 describe the future age with this motif about wine gladdening the heart, which is why we find Jesus in John chapter 2 as his first miracle, making the best wine. It's a sign of the coming Messiah. However, Noah degraded himself, and he abused the wine, and he became drunk and naked. The Old Testament does not have a prohibition of the use of wine for everybody. Remember, Nazarenes, there were certain things with Nazarite vows. But overall, it was okay with wine. It never, though, excused drunkenness and nakedness. Those two things were always something that were bad, wrong, against God. So it sets the stage for the oracle of Noah. Now, it's kind of interesting. In Egyptian literature, wine is attributed as an invention of the god Osiris. In the Genesis account, completely by contrast, because it's the first time we talk about wine, it reports that the beginning of wine and its effect on humans was anything but divine. Noah was drunk. And it had all the trappings 
of total depravity around it. Cursing and slavery rather than festive joy. That's how wine was introduced into the world. But the passage implies that any notion that indulges in the excessive use of wine and in nakedness is already in slavery. So nations that do that are following the wrong path. So moral behavior is an issue with Moses in this particular passage. Noah had a problem, and Noah's behavior prompted the violation by Ham. And so Ham sinned. Now Ham, he's identified as the father of Canaan. He saw his father's nakedness, and he told his two brothers outside. We're going to find out why Moses uses this idea that Canaan in the oracle, and Canaan, Ham is the father of. Why does he say that? We'll find out in a moment. But nakedness in the Old Testament was, from the beginning, a thing of shame, right? Adam and Eve were naked, and they went and hid themselves. It was undignified. It was vulnerable. By mentioning that Ham entered and saw his father's nakedness, the text emphasizes that he was seeing actually a disgusting thing. That's why the text is set that way. Ham looked. It was a moral flaw. It represented the first step in abandoning God's moral code. Not to mention that Noah was drunk. And it destroyed the honor of Noah. You can look up a number of different places in the scriptures that looking was a problem. Genesis 19.26, Exodus 33, Judges 13, 1 Samuel 6. David was on top of the roof looking. There's a lot of problems with looking. Ham desecrated a natural and a sacred barrier that he was not supposed to cross. And his going out to tell his brothers about it aggravated the act. Wasn't that he just saw it and then he was like, oh no, I just saw something I shouldn't have seen. But then he went out and he boasted about it. We'll find out why that's the case. Now Shem and Japheth acted in the right light to preserve the honor of their father by covering him with the garment. Ham uncovered. Noah's nakedness in such a way, Shem and Japheth covered him back up. And the text is very careful to state that they didn't see him. They walked in backwards. They covered him up. Their approach was cautious. Their backs were turned. In contrast to the brevity of the narrative as a whole, it draws out their sensitivity and their piety towards their father and towards God. We can't miss the point that what they did was in complete contrast to what Ham did, completely. Now, in the latter verses, 25 to 27, God will bless those who are righteous. But he's going to curse those who abandon God's law. Noah wakes up and he learns that his youngest son has acted in a wicked way. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. So there were repercussions. A humiliation in like manner will follow according to the principle of talionic justice. You do something, you get cursed. Him made an irreparable breach in his father's family. A curse thus was placed on him. Think about it. This is the only family. This is it. So from here, the family was divided as a result of Ham's wickedness. And the oracle comes up. Noah's oracle is that Canaan 
who's not even in the picture, the son of Ham would be cursed with slavery. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 25. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. Doesn't even mention Ham. What's the deal with that? Well, in the passage, the honor of Noah and the sanctity of the family had been treated very lightly. Therefore, Noah pronounced the oracle of cursing and that the Lord would fulfill it. And what he, what he states is that they get to lose their freedom in God. They have to become enslaved. He uses what we call the superlative genitive, which means that he is the servant of servants, the greatest of servants. He declared that it would be the most abject slavery possible. Canaan would serve his relatives, Shem and Japheth. But who was Canaan? Canaan's not even in the picture. Well, what Moses did was he knew and applied the prophecy. Was it right to curse someone for the actions of another? Because that's what he was doing. Right? But Moses' oracle was that Ham is going to be a slave to Shem and Japheth. His family line would be that. The Torah incorporates judgment from one generation to another, the sins of the fathers being visited on the children. Exodus 20 and verse 5. But in such cases, the one judged deserves to be punished. A later generation might be judged for the sin of an ancestor if they are of like mind and of like deed. Like father, like son. Otherwise, they might simply bear the fruit of some of their ancestors' sin. So in one of those ways, even though the oracle of cursing would weigh heavily on him as he saw his family marred, it was directed to his distant descendants. Why? Because they, were, they did the same thing handed. Moses was sitting right in the middle of it. The, the Israelites have, had left Egypt, of which, interestingly enough, are the descendants of Ham, but also went into the land of Canaan, of which are the descendants of Ham. And Moses warned the people of the Exodus about the wickedness of the Canaanites in terms that called to mind the violation of Ham. There follows in Leviticus 18 a very long list of vile practices that the Canaanites did. And the text employs euphemisms a number of times using the word nakedness. 24 times it uses it. Because of the sins of the Canaanites were defiled and they were to be driven out before the Israelites, the very sin that Ham had done in seeing his father's nakedness so... The Canaanites followed suit. And Moses was simply applying the oracle to them. But the Lord, the God of Shem, would be blessed. So that Shem would be served by Canaan. Japheth would be enlarged and settled in Shem's tents, causing Canaan to serve him. The blessings given to Shem. But the wording is kind of interesting. It says, the God of Shem is blessed. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it say, Shem is blessed as a result of being a son of God? That sounds more correct, but it says, the God of Shem is blessed. Well, 
God makes himself a name in becoming the God of Shem, and thus entwines his name with that of Shem, which means the same. By blessing the God of the man and the tribe, the man himself is blessed. The idea is that Shem would ascribe his good fortune to the Lord, for his advantage would be his relationship to the Lord. Canaan is enslaved. Shem is not. He's free. People living in dark debauchery without any familial respect but only aggressive sin are enslaved already by their lusts and are doomed to divine destruction. Those who want to please the Divine Father should cultivate piety and reverence and honor and holiness before God. On the whole, the story basically expresses the recoiling of Israelite morality coming out of Egypt and going into the land of Canaan with all these wicked people. I mean, this civilization deteriorated into some kind of wicked and evil people being enslaved by their vices. And here were the Israelites coming out to live in the midst of them. So Moses takes Noah's sin and turns it into the oracle that he gave to demonstrate the very situation that the Israelites were in at that time. But the Israelites, they needed to be morally pure and holy like Shem and Japheth. And then there's a little epilogue. Noah lived 350 years and he died. He died at the age of 950 years. That's a long time. What shall we learn from the text? Well, God will bless the righteous, but curse those who live in moral abandonment. The intention of the Holy Spirit is familiar. He wants the godly who knows their weaknesses, and for this reason are disheartened, to take comfort in the offense that comes from the account of the lapses among the most holy of people and the most perfect of the patriarchs. In such instances, we should find sure proof of our own weaknesses, and therefore bow down in humble confession, not only to ask forgiveness, but also hope that there will be forgiveness when we sin. The Holy Spirit makes mention of this, I guess we could call it an extraordinary lapse, a spiritual declension. He lives over 350 years more. That's what the text says when we end it. But Moses doesn't take time to talk about any of Noah's accomplishments in that way. His sin was inexcusable as is any, but this caused Ham to sin as well. Listen to why, though. Martin Luther said this. So Ham did not laugh at his father because of some childish thoughtlessness, as children do when they stand around a drunken peasant in the street and make sport of him. He was actually offended by his father's fall because he regarded himself as more righteous, holier, and more pious than his father. We have here more than a mere appearance of offense. The very situation is an offense because son Ham is so offended by his father's drunkenness that he passes judgment on his father and takes delight in his sin, which is exactly what Ham did. What kind of sin was it? Well, a pupil doesn't rebel against his teacher unless he first loses all due respect of his teacher. His son lost all due respect from his father. Ham 
was wise in his own eyes and holy to himself. And in his own judgment, he regarded many things that his father had done as evil or foolish. And it points to a heart that despises not only its parent, but also the commands of God, which says in the fifth commandment that he's to honor Noah. Therefore, nothing is left for the wicked son except to wait for an opportunity that he could use as evidence to bring his father's foolishness to public attention. And that's what he did. He went out and told his brothers, look at what dad's done. He wants this to be conclusive evidence that God has forsaken his father and accepted him, the one who went out and exposed his father for doing wrong. And so he broadcasts it. But here's the thing. Ham is not a seven-year-old child. He's a hundred-year-old man. And he sinned against his father as a result. That kind of sin found out that he was going to be enslaved to his brothers as a result. Another thing we should think of is that God should be praised and blessed forever for dealing with his saints in a truly wonderful manner. He could have really slammed Noah right there, but he didn't. He permits them to be weak and to stumble, and sometimes he lets his saints fall into displeasure and offense. And the world judges and condemns them, but he forgives them. He forgives them in their weaknesses, and he has compassion on them. On the other hand, he leaves to Satan and not only rejects those who are holy in their own eyes, people like Ham. The godly should have comfort that they have God to look to in their weakness, because they see that at times even the most holy men, even the saintliest of men, fall disgracefully as a result of their weaknesses. But God is going to curse those who act immorally. Ham was preserved from the flood, but he was later cursed. Though he was preserved with that few during the flood, he for really forgets everything about what religion is about. He forgets the commands of God. He forgets about what moral piety is about. Those sins are always first of the heart. He had a bad heart. That was his problem. And Ham is cursed by his father. But, interestingly enough, Ham takes possession of the largest portion of the world. I thought Ham was supposed to be a slave to Shem and Japheth. Ham actually establishes extensive kingdoms, one of which is Egypt, of which the Israelites were enslaved in Moses' writing after their rescue from that enslavement, correct? Yet, they go out into Canaan, another foreign land, which is by the sons of Ham. What's the deal? I thought that the prophecy said that they were going to be enslaved. Well, whether they're promises or threats, the prophecy here talks about how God delays both the punishments and the rewards. That's why Christ says, for he who endures unto the end will be saved. Ham was enslaved to his brothers because they were enslaved in moral turpitude, in moral wickedness, in evil. Ham and his descendants were the opposite of those who looked to God by faith. They were enslaved in their wickedness and their depravity. 
But the whole life of the godly is one of faith and hope. If one were to take all of the achievements and the examples of the world into account, they all stand for the opposite of what faith is about. Ham is cursed, and yet he becomes somewhat of a lord. Shem and Japheth are blessed, but they bear the curses and are afflicted by Ham's descendants in various ways. But, this, the scripture says, he shall be a slave of slaves. That is, the lowest and most abject slave. But, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense if we just look at it from the physical line, because you'll see that he rules in Canaan, and that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and other descendants were servants among the Canaanites many times. And the Egyptians are descendants of Ham, and they were oppressed in that country for hundreds of years. How then is it true that Ham is cursed and Shem is blessed? Well, evidently in this way. It's the fulfillment of the divine promise and threat had to be waiting. It's the whole idea, the delay that occurs is that the ungodly may fill their cup and God cannot be accused of not giving an opportunity for repentance. Just because it's a physical idea that we're thinking about, we have to translate it over to understand that God, like he said about the Amorites, I'm not going to judge them yet because their sins are not yet filled. They are building up. Ham's descendants were building up curses upon one another. And when the, while the godly are oppressed by the ungodly and actually serve those who are their servants, they go through trials and training for the purpose of increasing their faith and love towards God. That's what's going on. So, they are slaves. And they are the slave of slaves. When the Christian thinks of those who are not Christian out in the world and thinks, oh, they have lots of money or, oh, they have a big house or, oh, they own a big business, they go, oh, but they're enslaved. While the time was going by, it was impossible for Ham's descendants to be powerful enough to avoid the divine judgment that was coming because theirs was just a physical industry that they were coming up in. The curse ultimately came upon Ham and all his descendants because they had regarded God's people and God himself with arrogant contempt and unbelief. So Ham was cursed. Canaan was cursed. And Moses made a practical application in the oracle right there showing the Israelites the effects of the curse that went from Ham right down into the people. How then shall we look and take this particular passage and apply it to ourselves? Well, very simply, a couple of things. One, we should be respecting our elders. Ham didn't respect his father. Moses shows Ham as a horrible example of those that we should help young people in the church, young people around us, to understand that they should, in every way, learn to respect and love their elders, the civil government, the magistrates, their parents. They should have respect for them. This account isn't recorded for Noah's sake or for Ham's sake. It's recorded for our sake. Ham was a despiser of God. And Ham was a despiser of his parents. And he's depicted in the most hideous way. 
and he's cursed in that same way, that God so cursed him to give him over to the lust of his flesh. Disobedience towards parents is, therefore, a clear indication of impending curse and disaster, which is also carried over into a contempt of the president, the mayor, anyone who stands in civil office, office of the ministry, pastors and deacons. When people in the ancient world began to deride the patriarchs and despise their authority, what happened? Flood came. When among the people of Judah, a child began to be insolent against an old person, what happened? Jerusalem fell and Judah collapsed, as Isaiah 3, 5 shows. Once you abandon those morals, the deterioration of morals is the surest indication of impending ruin. How shall we apply it to America? Seems like America is prospering. Well, the procedure, though, of divine justice is this, that the godly should have a kingdom but in faith and should be satisfied with the spiritual blessing that they have a reconciled God and a sure hope of the kingdom of heaven, all done and accomplished by Christ for us. Meanwhile, in America, they should leave the possession of the kingdoms of the world to the ungodly until God scatters them, even physically. But he will appoint us as heirs of all things. Why? Because the meek, not the prosperous, shall inherit the earth. He appoints us heirs of all things through Christ, which is spiritual. In this passage, Moses expresses the same idea when he, when he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. For that means that blessing is nowhere else except to be found where the God of Shem is. Not in money, not in houses, not in cars, not in land, nowhere. It's an outstanding promise that he gives. That blessing is a spiritual thing. Could people like Abraham and like Job and like David and like Solomon and many be rich? Sure. But that is not where their blessing resides. And this remains in force until the end of the world. It only applies to those who have the God of Shem or those who believe. So the curse, too, applies only to those who continue in the ungodliness of Ham. It's all around us. For since Noah is not speaking these words as a human being or on his own authority and reason, but through the Spirit of God, he's speaking this oracle. And that's how the Spirit thinks. It's not just that things are temporally judgmental. The curse of Noah extends right into eternity. The curse must be understood as applying not only before the world, but by God for all time. So we should remember that God will bless and curse, even still. Secondly, may we never gloat over the offenses of others. You should be ashamed of yourself when you think that way. When we see the saints fall, we should not be immediately offended, much less we gloat over the weakness of other people or rejoice as though we were somehow stronger or wiser or more holy. Exactly what Ham did. We should bear with and cover them. Love, the apostle says, covers a multitude of sins. Does it not? 
we should extenuate and we should excuse all the mistakes as much as we can, bearing in mind that what the other person has experienced today, we might experience tomorrow. Paul said, he who stands should take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 This is why Ham's brothers looked upon their drunken parent. That's the way they did. They looked upon it to excuse and to love. They thought, our father has fallen. But God deals in a wonderful way with his saints. Sometimes he lets them fall for our comfort, lest we despair and we are overcome by similar weaknesses. So let's go in and let's cover him up. Let's not look at him. Let's honor him. The sins of other people do not give us the power to judge them as Ham did. Remember, Ham thought he was better than them. The way he judged him. And yet we forget that they stand and fall for their own Lord. Romans 14.4 They stand and fall for their own Lord. They're judged by God. We are not their judge. We judge what is right and what is wrong. Do you think Shem and Japheth knew that what their father did was wrong? Yes. But that wasn't the point. That's not what Moses drew out. Moses drew out the gloating of Ham. So we should be on guard. If the downfall of others displeases us, since many actions surely neither should nor can be excused, let us be on our guard all the more diligently, because something of the same sort might happen to us. But we shouldn't judge proudly or presumptuously. We should judge in a way in which love should cover a multitude of sins. We are indeed weak sinners, and we readily confess that since we are human, our behavior is not always free from offense, is it? We are sinners, and we fall. But although we have this fault in common with all those who fall as well, we diligently do our duty by planting the word of God, teaching the church's correct doctrine, correcting defects in doctrine, exhorting to what is right, comforting the weak, and whatever else we can do to send forth the ministry of the word rightly so that we might grow thereby, we do that. Because you really have to think about it. All these real achievements Moses passes by, and he doesn't touch on them with a single word that Noah could have done and Noah could have accomplished. This one factor records how Noah became drunk and was ridiculed by his younger son. But this is an outstanding example from which godly people might learn to trust in God's mercy. Exactly what we should learn from the passage. On the other hand, the people who are proud the would-be religious, the sanctimonious, people who are holier than thou, they should learn to fear God and refrain from rashly judging others. For God is wonderful in his dealings and wonderful with his saints. He deals kindly with them. We don't hear about God cursing Noah. We hear about him cursing he who is holier than thou, who is Ham. Think about the worst king in all of the Bible. The worst, most evil who reigned the longest. That was Manasseh. Wicked man. And yet in the end, God changed him. Interestingly enough. And there is even recorded an extra biblical piece of literature called the prayer of Manasseh, which says that God, this is Manasseh talking, that says 
God is very terrible against the ungodly and sinners. After his repentance, he says that. God's very terrible against them. And he was the, wicked of, the most wicked of all the kings. But that's the kind of example that Ham shows. This was not the first time that Ham went astray, but rather he aggravated what was already there. He nourished this hatred against his father for a long time. And later then, as a result, think about it, he filled the entire world with his idolatry. But think, Christ has come. Does he gloat over us? Does he say, oh, look at these sinners. Look at these wicked people. How terrible they are. He's perfect. He has no sin. He could do that if he wants. But he doesn't. The scriptures say that God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And yet, as a result, sometimes we gloat over the offenses of others. Take a lesson from Ham. Ham was cursed. He was cursed for generations. He is still cursed and will forever be cursed as a result of thinking that he was holier than others. We should not rejoice and we should not gloat if we think we are stronger or wiser or better. And we should remember that we would experience some of these same temptations tomorrow that we're gloating over these people today. So we must be on guard of those things. And we must not imitate the cursed ham, but instead the holiness, the piety, the true righteousness of Shem and Japheth. We can only do that through the power of Christ. We can only do that through the Holy Spirit. Might God aid us in doing that as we consider this passage. Let's pray together. Mighty God, we come before you asking that you would aid us abundantly. We often, Lord, judge others and shouldn't. Not even in the right way. We should judge what is right. We should judge what is wrong. We should judge what is good and true and noble and righteous and holy. But sometimes, like Ham, we look at others and not being sensitive to their weaknesses, instead, we gloat over them. And yet, when we do, we partake of the same stench that Ham raises into the air with his speech. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would forgive us and that you would aid us to be like Shem and Japheth that you would rejoice to be our God, that you would not be ashamed to be called our God. And, O oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to take a lesson also from Noah. In all of the things that Moses could have written, he wrote that Noah was drunk and naked. Even the best of the saints still have their spots. And yet, O oh Lord, we pray that you would help us in the time that we have, just as Noah had 350 more years, we ask, Lord, that you would aid us in all the work that we do, that we would be holy and righteous, unspotted, that you would aid us to follow you with our whole heart, keeping the law as we should, with the help of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, looking to him. We ask that we would be a pleasing aroma before you as a sacrifice given, a living sacrifice given over to you in all these things. And we so pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. 
SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.